It's PR is way better than its reality. And that's why Kirby Anderson breaks through the deceit and hypocrisy surrounding socialism. Now on Probe. Socialism is more popular today than anyone would have predicted a few years ago. A significant number of socialist characters can be found in Congress. Universities have many professors who are promoting socialism, and more young people than ever believe socialism is superior to capitalism. So why is socialism so appealing to so many Americans? Well, young people are drawn to the siren song of Bernie Sanders and Alexandria Ocasio-Cortez. Part of the reason is that it appeals to their sense of fairness. Another reason is that it promises lots of free stuff. You know, free college tuition and student loan forgiveness are examples. The millennial generation and the iGen generation have lots of student debt. They see the need but forget that someone will have to pay for this new massive entitlement. And they rarely stop and think about why someone who didn't go to college and took a blue-collar job should pay for their university education. The cost of some of these policies is enormous. Tuition in public colleges and universities is estimated at $70 billion a year. One study of the cost of government-run health care called Medicare for All was estimated to cost $32 trillion during the first 10 years. Some estimate the cost of the Green New Deal to be $93 trillion. We can certainly debate how accurate some of those estimates are, but we can't ignore that these would be very expensive once these programs are implemented. Now, there is some evidence that the popularity of socialism is waning. A post-election survey done by the Cultural Research Center shows a significant decline in support for socialism. George Barna believes that another reason for this decline is the aggressive marketing of a government-driven culture that show young and old what socialism America would really be like. He found that the most precipitous decline in support for socialism was among Americans ages 30 to 49. Just a decade ago, these were the demographic that I was pointing to as those who supported socialism more than capitalism. That has changed significantly. Socialism is less popular even for Americans who are age 50 and older. In the past, they have been the group most consistent in their support of capitalism, but even in this group, there was an 8 percentage point decline in the support of socialism. And the demographic groups with the least support for socialism were Christians who had a biblical worldview and what George Barna called sage cons, spiritually active, government-engaged conservatives. But there is still a small percentage of them who support socialism. That's why I also address whether the Bible teaches socialism. You've been listening to Probe with your host, Kirby Anderson. Get your free copy of Kirby's transcript, Socialism, at probe.org. Then join us next time here on Probe. In order to understand the appeal of socialism, we need to make a clear distinction between capitalism and socialism. Capitalism is an economic system in which there is private property and the means of production are privately owned. In capitalism, there's a limited role for government. Socialism is an economic system in which there is public or state ownership of the means of production, and the primary focus is on providing an equality of outcomes. In socialism, the state is all-important and involved in central planning. Often when young people are surveyed about socialism, the pollster does not provide a definition. If you merely believe that socialism means equality in society, then you can see why so many choose socialism over capitalism. Also, young people under the age of 30 are probably the least likely to associate socialism with Soviet-styled repression. Instead, they may have their minds on the current government push towards European socialism and find that more attractive. 
There's an important philosophical reason for the popularity of socialism. When Karl Marx first proposed the concepts of socialism and communism, he enjoyed an intellectual advantage. He could contrast the reality of capitalism with the utopian ideal of socialism. You know, utopian visions will always win over the harsh reality of the world, but we now have the terrible record of socialism. Unfortunately, socialism's death toll never quite gets factored into any equation. The late columnist Joseph Sobrin said, It makes no difference that socialism's actual record is terribly bloody. Socialism is forever judged by its promises and supposed possibilities, while capitalism is judged by its worst cases. Dinesh D'Souza reminds us that many countries have tried socialism and all failed. The first socialist experiment was the Soviet Union, then came lots of countries in Eastern Europe. Add to that countries in Asia, like Vietnam and Laos and Cambodia and North Korea and China and countries in South America and even in Africa. And by this count, there are 25 failed experiments in socialism. The typical answer to these failures is that each of these was not done correctly. The failure of these socialist experiments was a failure of implementation. But this time they say, we will get it right. Believing in socialism apparently means never having to say you're sorry. Tomorrow we'll look at the argument that democratic socialism is the ideal, that we should ignore this list of socialist failures and focus on socialism in the Scandinavian countries. Proponents of socialism not only argue that it was not implemented correctly in the past, but also argue that they are proposing democratic socialism, and they usually point to Scandinavian countries as examples. Anders Hagstrom, in one of his videos, asks, what does socialism mean to him? He says that conversations about socialism often go like this. A liberal says that we should be socialist. A conservative points to Venezuela and says that socialism doesn't work. A liberal says, what about Sweden and Norway? The conservative then points out that these countries aren't socialist. He says that even if we accept the comment by liberals, there is a problem. Nordic countries have tiny populations of less than 10 million, and copying and pasting their policies to a country of 330 million isn't going to work. These Nordic countries were successful before they adopted the redistributive policies that they have now. Here's a reality check. If Sweden were to join the United States as a state, Sweden would be poorer than all of 12 states. Hegstrom also explains that the policies of true socialists like Senator Bernie Sanders and Alexandria Ocasio-Cortez go far beyond what the Nordic countries have. For example, Bernie Sanders wants a planned economy. None of the Nordic states have this. Alexandria Ocasio-Cortez wants to abolish profit. None of the Nordic countries have that. And both of them want a universal minimum wage, and none of the Nordic states have that. Of course, there's another problem with the argument. These countries aren't socialists. John Stossel, in one of his videos, interviewed a prominent historian. Johan Norberg makes it clear that Sweden is not socialist because the government doesn't own the means of production. To see that, he says you have to go to Venezuela or Cuba or North Korea. He does admit that the country did have something that resembled socialism a few decades ago. The government heavily taxed the citizens and spent heavily. That was not a good period in Swedish history, especially for the economy. Yet even with the high Swedish taxes, there was simply not enough money to fund Sweden's huge welfare state. He explains that people couldn't get the pension they thought they were dependent on for the future. At that point, the Swedish people had enough and began to reduce the size and scope of government. 
John Stossel says they cut public spending, privatized the National Railroad, abolished certain government monopolies, eliminated inheritance taxes, and sold state-owned businesses. While it is true that Sweden does have a larger welfare state than the United States and higher taxes than the U.S., in many other ways Sweden is actually much more free market. You know, one of the moral arguments for socialism is that it creates a society with more social and economic equality. Proponents want us to consider the fairness argument when applied to a free market. How fair is it that basketball star LeBron James makes more than $37 million a year when a social worker starting out only makes $30,000? Even more extreme is the estimate that Jeff Bezos makes more than $320 million a day, while the average Amazon salary is around $30,000. $5,000 a year. Of course, this is what happens in a free society where people with different skills, different abilities, different motivations are allowed to participate in a free market. You get inequality. But you also have a free society where people can use their gifts to pursue their calling and still receive a good income. We don't have to guess what will happen in a socialist economy because we have lots of historical examples. In a desire to bring equality, socialism doesn't bring people up out of poverty. Instead, it drives them into poverty. Consider two test cases, Germany and Korea. After World War II, Germany was divided into two countries. West Germany was capitalist, while East Germany was socialist. Throughout the time they were divided, there was a striking difference between the two countries. When the two countries were reunified, the GDP of East Germany was a third of the GDP of West Germany. An even better example is North and South Korea because it lasted longer and continues to this day. South Korea is now more than 20 times richer than North Korea. Of course, people in South Korea are also freer than North Korea. They're also taller and live about 12 years longer than people in North Korea. By contrast, capitalism provides every person a chance to influence the society. In his book, The United States of Socialism, Dinesh D'Souza doesn't ignore the issue of justice, but actually embraces it. He says capitalism, far more than socialism, reflects the will of the people and actually expresses democratic consent. A consumer is like a voter. As a citizen, we get to vote in an election every two or four years, but a consumer gets to vote every day with his or her dollar bills. A free market provides you with a level of popular participation and democratic consent that politics can never provide. You get to vote every day with your dollars and send economic signals to people and companies providing goods and services. Essentially, capitalism, like democracy, is a clear form of social justice. Perhaps you've heard some Christians argue that the Bible actually supports socialism. The book of Acts seems to approve of socialism. In Acts 4, we find a statement that the believers in Jerusalem had all things in common. It also says that those who possessed land or houses sold them and brought the proceeds to the apostles' feet. They distributed these gifts to anyone in need. This looks like socialism to many who are already predisposed to believe that it should be the economic system of choice. But first, we need to realize that this practice was only done in Jerusalem. As you read through the rest of the book of Acts and read the letters of Paul and Peter, you see that most believers in other parts of the Roman world had private property and possessions. Paul calls upon them to give voluntarily to the work of ministry. Second, the word voluntary applies not only to Christians in other parts of the world, but also it was a voluntary act by the believers in Jerusalem to give sacrificially to each other in the midst of persecution. This one passage in the book of Acts is not a mandate for socialism. 
If you keep reading in the book of Acts, you will also see that the believers in Jerusalem owned the property before they voluntarily gave the proceeds to the apostles. The next chapter in Acts 5 clearly teaches that. When Peter confronted Ananias, he clearly stated, While it remained, was it not your own? After it was sold, was it not in your own control? Owning property contradicts one of the fundamental principles of socialism. In the Communist Manifesto, the abolition of property is a major item in the plan for moving from capitalism to socialism and eventually to communism. By contrast, the Ten Commandments assume private property. The Eighth Commandment forbidding stealing and the Tenth Commandment about coveting both assume that people have private property rights. In fact, we can use biblical principles to evaluate economic systems like capitalism and socialism. Although the Bible does not endorse a particular system, it does have key principles about human nature, private property rights, and the role of government, and these can be used to evaluate economic systems like socialism and capitalism. Socialism is still a popular idea, especially among young people. Recent polls, along with various books about capitalism and socialism, illustrate the need for us to discuss and explain the differences between capitalism and socialism. Socialism may sound appealing until you begin to look at the devastating impact it has had on countries that travel down the road of greater governmental control.